Excuse me, can I touch you for a minute? <laughs> Excuse me, can I touch you for a minute? This is a real honor to be here and talk for a few minutes about music that matters. Now, Bruce Edward Walker has uh, pushed a lot of uh, media on me over the years, and uh, I thought that he could be a regular guest on the show, and we start out talking about music that matters. In the near future, we will be talking about books that matter, and uh, concerts that matter, movies that matter, things that are along the vein of consumable media that I think you speak so eloquently and so well of and always learn from you. So I need to get a few of these stories captured on tape. And today starts with music that matters. Well, terrific. Let's, uh, let's get started. All right. So first, some general questions before we get into the actual music is... What's important to listen to when listening to music? Well, I, I guess for myself, um, having grown up with uh, extreme hearing difficulties, I, I always go for the rhythm because that's, that's what I discerned from the get-go when I was first listening to the radio as, as a child. And uh, we, we, my parents bought our first hi-fi system when I was around four years old. And I could put my hand or my ear to the speaker and discern the, the, the beat, the rhythm, the, rhythm uh, the shuffle, one of my all-time favorite songs. One of my, my, my first favorite song, I believe, was probably a song called Jukebox Man by Mel Tillis. And uh, it just had this great shuffling beat. And I have no idea whether you'll ever be able to find this album or this record online to, to play a, a couple of snippets from it, but it's it's absolutely a wonderful song. I'm gonna get a bunch of niggas, gonna buy my parole, gonna put them in the juke and watch a record go. I love to hear the beating of a flat guitar and a bass of Peter snapping it eight to the bar. It's about the the joy of listening to music, and uh, when um, my hearing finally came into its own, I, I was at the end of fourth grade, and I would, grew up in a very large farmhouse with a very large family, and there was always arguments and radios and conversations and television and record players and ad nauseum. So it was uh, being overwhelmed by, by sound. And so in order to deal with all of this, I, I would retreat to my, my, uh, my comfort zone. And that would be to put my ear to a speaker and just divorce myself from the, the maelstrom that was surrounding me. And so... Uh, I paid a lot of attention mostly to, to rhythm. And then um, in order to communicate with my hearing difficulties, I had to learn how to write at a very early age. So I became very interested in words and lyrics. So when uh, uh, Mel Tillis sings, gonna 
get a bunch of nickels, going to buy rock and roll, going to put them in the juke and watch the records go. I love to hear the picking of the flat guitar and the bass fiddle slapping at eight to the bar. Like, okay, rhyme and the, the meter, the, this, the, the joy that is being expressed was uh, really, you know, to, to borrow a word that you used earlier, transcendent. It can do it. I've been there. I've been there too. Something about that. Something about it, and I love it. I love music sound. That while I don't want to be blind or deaf, either of them, it's not a given that I would choose deafness if I had to choose between uh, losing my eyesight or losing my losing my uh, hearing. Well, here's the deal. My last name is Walker, and you might recall that Pete Townsend wrote a whole rock opera about a young boy whose last name was Walker, and his name was first name was Tommy, and he was a deaf, dumb, and blind kid, and he sure played a mean pinball. And uh, so I, I definitely relate to that aspect of dealing with the world because I, I am extremely nearsighted. I, I wear Coke bottle lens glasses, and uh, sometimes I will uh, drift off into my own thoughts and, and become the, uh, the the deaf child that I used to be in that I will listen to nature's rhythms when I'm on a fly stream or if I'm hiking or, or what have you, or even if I'm walking through a mall, I will go into a reverie where nothing, I hear nothing else but the distant music playing on the Muzak from the speakers. Uh, there was an episode of Portlandia where Fred woke up from a dream in which I, I believe the dream had him winning tickets to go see Jay-Z in concert. And he woke up from the dream and... During the dream, I think he was called in, called on from the stage to, like, point it out. Name me, you know, your favorite hip-hop song. And he couldn't do it. And so when he woke up from the dream, <clears throat> he told Carrie, he's like, I've missed out on this. I don't know. I, I, I don't know anything about, you can kind of hear him saying it kind of fast, kind of almost like a Woody Allen, that, that character that he played. Uh-huh. Uh, so Carrie's like, I think I can help right. you out. So then he goes through this lesson. The sketch is him going through a lesson of learning certain uh, cultural references and cultural milestones with hip-hop music. But that leads me into my next question. It is, is it important to broaden our horizons, so to speak, with culture, what seems to be culturally relevant or culturally popular music, but that I, Daniel or whoever it is, the listener, simply can't stomach or has no zero interest in. Like, one of these days, Beyonce's going to... I think this might be Freudian. (laughs) I I, I know, that that, uh, You you can't get Queen Bee's name out. You have to, you know, check yourself. (laughs) Something's going on. I I can't explain it. She... uh, God forbid she gets killed in a plane crash. And then the whole world mourns her, and I would mourn too, because life and death, it's a really big deal. And then I'll, I'll start listening to the Lemonade album. 
and it will become something that it wasn't before. But until then, I just can't do it. It's not something that resonates with me at any level to, to be interested in hip-hop. My, my older brother is rapper, hardcore. He doesn't rap himself, but he, the, all he cares about is what used to be called gangsta rap, or I don't know what, what it's called these days. But is it important for me to try to broaden my horizons with music that I do not like? Oh, you know what? Heck no. I, I, I certainly don't think that that is the case. Uh, I guess I go along with the, the Waldorf education system on that. It's it, If you have open ears to listen to this and enjoy it, perfect, fantastic. But I don't. I don't think that there's some type of uh, mandate that you have a broad knowledge of any type of music or music at all, for that matter. Uh, it just so happens that I fell into that groove at an early age and uh, find it tremendously enjoyable. But I've shut myself off to a lot of. Uh, current pop music simply because it, it doesn't talk to me anymore because um, I'm an individual of a certain age and you know the moon june spoon romantic lyrics really don't speak to me as much as uh, say the, the music of my youth uh, there's there's that nostalgic element and uh, there's you know I have two daughters who have turned me on to a lot of hip-hop music that uh, I, I find to be tremendously enjoyable. I don't necessarily go out and seek it as part of the, this ongoing musical education that uh, I really don't need to do that because this isn't you know my living. I, I have friends that I came up with back in my early 20s who have uh, are still writing about music and uh, my my warning to them back in the 20s is like you know what you turn this into a job this you're gonna be doing this forever and you're gonna have to listen to music with open ears and that's really really difficult to do i mean as as you age you sort of kind of um build a, a barrier around you and saying okay this is this is my safe space this is where i i listen to the same uh 50 jazz albums that I listened to 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, or the the same music that I listened to uh, that was popular on the radio when I was growing up, or you know, I I recall my the, my very first favorite all time song when aside from Mel Tillis was uh, "Hit the Road Jack" by uh, Ray Charles love that song I thought it was absolutely fantastic and then I recall in second grade um, couldn't hear well but I could hear well enough to appreciate the fact that when I was in my sister's car and we rounded a hill in northern Michigan looking out at this broad vista while the power cord blast of I can see for miles by the who came on and I'm thinking oh my gosh this is this is Music can actually provide a remarkable soundtrack to what it is that you're going through at any given point in time. And then, you know, having my heart broken 
on numerous occasions by the time I was in second, third grade. Uh, I, I fell in love with my third grade student teacher, but uh, she didn't have time for me. So, you know, you would listen to heartbreak songs and say, okay, I can find some type of solace in, in this music. Or at least I can find a, a kindred spirit that, that says, yep, um, someone just ripped your heart out of your chest and stomped on it. And uh, furthermore, you know, you know, shipped it off to uh, parts unknown and you'll be lucky to see it again. And then next week you, you develop a crush on somebody else. Right, right. That's the way it goes. Right. But, you know, that's pop culture. There's a, there's a lot of wonderful things to say about it. I finished the Netflix series, the David Letterman Netflix series, My Next Guest, I think it's what the name mm-hmm. of it was. It's a, the recent one, and he he interviewed amongst uh, Malala and uh, Barack Obama, Howard Stern, George Clooney, he, Jay-Z, and I thought it was the best interview. I didn't think Letterman's... Uh, the best interviewer, but I thought that was the best interview is with Jay-Z. And it was informative. I learned about his, about his upbringing in as much as a 45-minute or an hour-long interview can be. So I thought this was enticing enough is I should go dial him up on Spotify. And I really couldn't take more than a minute of it. It, even that kind of insight into his life, his upbringing, his relationship, his outlook on the music biz and songwriting wasn't enough to get me to be able to enjoy or resonate. That that music didn't resonate with me, so I just crossed him off my list again till he gets killed in a plane crash. <laughs> well, uh I don't know. I, I, I think that uh, pop culture today has become so uh, remarkably geared toward a specific audience that we, we don't have a shared pop culture mm-hmm. much like we used to. I mean, we, we, we have uh, pop culture, and I, I hate to use this word icons, because it, it, icons mean something more religious to me than... Uh, just some mm. face that is uh, immediately recognized. But uh, we have, you know, say the Kardashian sisters and, and, and what have you, and we immediately recognize them. But uh, I could grab any young person and say, sing me a Jay-Z song, and they would, I, I would say probably they would have difficulty some of them would have difficulty doing it because it's we, they say well I'm 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 a Taylor Swift person or I am a uh uh Kanye West person or or whomever so I I I think that uh we we don't have a shared pop culture it's it's not like 1969 where you could sit down and say okay it, the the number one song from 1969 was the Archies' "Sugar Sugar," and uh, which is is a mind blower because it's it's really you know a saccharine song, pardon the pun, but it, it it's also just kind of a a very sweet song 
and it, it's just got a, a bouncy rhythm to it and uh, very likable and enjoyable vocals and uh, but that was the same year that you know the Vietnam War was just going absolutely crazy and the Beatles were breaking up and you had Creedence Clearwater Revival and you had all these individuals who were protesting the war who were coming out with these songs that were highly socially critical and but we listen to all of that and it's all part of our our cultural makeup and today I don't see us having a, a commonality in in pop culture I, I think that uh, things have been so uh, ghettoized, and by ghettoized, I, I mean by little boxes that that we say this is what I like, and we we are not entirely connected to each other. So uh, you may go online and say, "Hey, I." finally found another person who likes this album or this song that was re just released and you can, and kids will go to school and be a t totally alone in their their cultural experience if that makes any sense yeah i i do get it i once spotify came on the scene I stopped buying CDs, so shame on you. I I've bought started buying vinyl though for albums I really care about for bands I really care about, but digital music is is all on Spotify now. So I have I have an iPod that is loaded with thousands of songs dating back to from all the old songs I remember up to. See what would what might be the last. I don't even know what the last record that I installed on that iPod, but it's hooked up to my stereo, and it's got most everything that I grew up with and uh, learned about. But then there's Spotify, so I can discover, quote unquote, in a Chestertonian sort of way, uh, where I stumble upon a band that I've never heard of. And I click into their top five songs, and their number one song has 250 million listens. And I had zero idea. So it could be that I am totally off the, the, the cultural bandwagon of how in the world did this band have a song? And then their other top fives, uh, Fleet Foxes, say, for example. It's, they sell out every concert that they have and they have hundreds of millions of downloads but it's like this niche band it is they, they, they are a niche band and uh, there's I think that almost all music today has become niche there's very few us uh, you know used to call them summer breakout hits uh, very few of that those songs break through to the public consciousness now when I'm talking the broader cultural consciousness it, it's um, every everything has been nicheified it, it depends on, on what your bucket is I, I, I listen to a lot of country music and uh, I, I, I find it 
absolutely amazing that uh, but for uh, a couple of uh, shows on public radio, I would not even be familiar with Robbie Folks, who uh, has just released a new album with Linda Gale Lewis, who is uh, Jerry Lee Lewis's younger sister. So uh, it, it, you, one of the things that you really have to do now is go out and actively search for music, whereas before it, it was just pervasive. And uh, AM radio became you know, FM radio, and then you started hanging out in record stores and going through the cutout bins and talking to the guys behind the, uh, this is what I used to do, talking to the guys behind the counter, or uh, staying up late at night and calling DJs and, and talking to them about music. And you expand your horizons that way, but and, and that was also an active thing. But it, it just seemed a lot easier to do because you know try to get through to talk to a DJ now. DJs now don't spin discs; they don't break songs like they used to. Yeah, the singles already available on Spotify, right. good or bad, and then it's just being another outlet to to play a song the dj is right and and i i guess you know i i fall on the conservative bandwagon on this i i i do lament the the change in how music is consumed now where it's more or less just background music whereas i just recall when i was in high school and college we would pull together our resources and go out and buy the new Who album or we'd uh, buy the new John Lennon album and we would take it back to our apartments or our, our bedrooms and we would listen to it and, you know, parse it out and read the liner notes and memorize the <laughs> liner notes. And all of that seemed to change. I mean, again, I mean, I'm, I play a mean pinball, but I can't see very well. And reading liner notes on a CD was very problematic. You know, you had to squint. And somehow, you're a graphic designer, so I, I lay a lot of this at your feet because most, <laughs> Sorry. Of, the, most of the stuff in uh, the liner notes were in reversed-out text with sans-serif type. And it's very difficult for a guy with uh, seeing difficulties to read those things. I apologize from the bottom of my graphic design heart. You should. You should because, uh, you know... It's the likes of you that destroyed my, my enjoyment of music or, or reading about it. My latest vinyl album that I bought was Bird Talkers' first full release. They've got an EP, and then their latest release is one. And it's got the pull-out sleeve with the lyrics on it, just just like it should, in a good size. That's Well, that's great, because uh, old fogies like me really appreciate that. Uh, thrown into the bottom of the the album though is a little two by two square card where you can also get a digital download so i you have the best of both worlds okay well i i i'm i'm not so much of a musical snob that i i uh turn up my nose at digital music uh i was one of the first kids on my block to actually own ry cooter's bop till you drop which was the first all digitally recorded and released album so, uh, you know, I go back that far. So I, I'm, I'm not going to say that digital music per se is such a bad thing, 
but I, I will say that um, it became far more difficult to really embrace the entire musical experience with the advent of uh, cassettes and CDs because it was just so much more difficult to read the liner notes. And, that, and the liner notes included reading the lyrics and uh, it became a, uh, a full body experience from what you're listening to to what you're reading. And it, that all changed. That all changed in the 80s. That's interesting. Uh, my, my 80s, the seminal 80s album that pops to mind that was shared culturally, seemingly by everyone, even though when I was a teen, there, there, I'm sure there was a age difference, but in my world, it was Thriller by Michael Jackson. Is this had tens of millions, ultimately 75 million or more, I don't know, records sold, and many people had the shared experience of the same music, the same albums, which is a little bit different now than the 100 million downloads of Fleet Fox's song that would be difficult in your general cultural norm uh, situation to find somebody who could even name what the Fleet Fox's big song was that has so many listens. Right, right. Well, and and, and the thing about uh, Thriller, it you know it hit a cultural sweet spot in that uh, it there was a, a little thing called MTV at the time that actually played music videos. And up until that point in time, uh, if your memory serves, you you might have been too young. They didn't play black artists. You you there were no African American artists whatsoever on MTV until Michael Jackson broke that barrier and released Thriller and uh, started doing long form videos. That uh, I, I remember the BJ saying check this out, you know, coming up this hour, we're going to play the entire Thriller video, you know, not just snippets of it. And you'd get excited because, bet you by golly, that was, it was a great album. It was a landmark album. There's a lot of great music on that album. And it was new and exciting. I remember we didn't have cable TV coming in. I grew up with the black and white television. I grew up in the 80s, 70s and 80s, but we lived in the kind of household where it, we watched wasn't a plenty priority. of TV, but it was mm-hmm. on a little 12-inch black and white. So Dukes of Hazard was in black and white. Hogan's Heroes was in black and white. Who watches Hogan's Heroes in black and white? Uh, but Thriller Video was in black and white because we had to you know, get a v- v- VCR, VHS, and record it from somewhere so I could rent a VCR player and play... Uh, uh, a dubbed version of of this if I wanted to watch it in my own house but that was the links that we could go to to consume media which is which was different not that right. not everyone had that kind of uh, those hurdles they had to jump over but 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 that's just it you know there's there's the 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 pain gain dynamic that that is going on there if if you actually have to actively seek this out it becomes more pleasurable when you finally attain it as opposed to having everything immediately accessible so if i if i want to say hmm 
there's a T.S. McPhee song that was released in 1966. Uh, I am going to do everything I can in my power to uh, locate it and, and purchase it. This is back in the day. You'd go to Goldmine and you'd pour through all the uh, the listings for used 45s and albums, or you'd start pouring through uh, the the stacks in record stores or at estate sales or what have you. And when you finally found it, it was the Holy Grail. Now it's just like, well, there's a T.S. McPhee song from 1966. Computers on. It's on YouTube or it's on Spotify. You can find it immediately. And it becomes more disposable as a result. Yeah, it kind of feels like that. kind of feels like that. It does. Then there's these glimpses of... Uh, there's glimpses of uh, hope as defined as... Uh, somebody trying to keep things alive or not just reminiscing of the past because like it or not everything that happened in the past isn't a bad idea the cult of modernity has it's overwhelming sometimes that it's got to be new stuff so uh i love it when artists arcade fire a couple years ago at, uh they didn't require it but if you were going to come to their concert they asked that you would dress up, that you'd put on a jacket and a tie uh, for whatever reason, shooting a video, I don't know. But I loved that them trying to influence something they cared about for whatever reason, the, the, just the ma- maturity of the look or the sound. I love that when artists and uh, other pop culture folks do try to bring a little bit of the past up into the, the modern well, right, and uh, I, I've had many conversations about this in, in my own podcast where I, I discuss uh, the modern-day dystopia of immediate gratification. I mean, now I can read a book review, and if it sounds interesting to me, I have that book on my, my, my Kindle Fire or my, my Barnes & Noble Nook, and uh, I can order something and receive a hard copy. Uh, I live in the hinterlands, so I can have it within two or three days. But, you know, I have a daughter who lives in Nashville, and she can order a book, and it's on her doorstep in three hours. And there's a lot to be said for the, the convenience of that i mean i don't want to sound like get those books off my lawn i but what i what i am saying is the 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 fact that things are immediately accessible to such an extent makes them more disposable there there's there's a lot to be said for uh scarcity increasing perceived value uh has any song or artist recently really surprised you? Like a shock out of nowhere, for good or bad? Um, you know, I, I have to throw myself at the mercy of the court on this. I, I, I haven't really written about new music in such a long time. Uh, what are the, as I said before, I've been listening to a lot of country music lately, 
And I think that, uh, you know, I've, I've adored Robbie Folks for, for probably the last 15, 20 years. I have uh, a daughter who lives in Nashville who is uh, uh, brought up on my favorite music and uh, from, from Patti Smith to R.E.M. to uh, The Who to Jeff Beck. But uh, and she quickly got into hip hop and was uh, kind of like my my tutor and mentor through all, all that that genre of music. But this is um, uh, one of the things that she did turn me on to was uh, she was a big Justin Timberlake fan, mm. who you know is you know kind of like a Michael Jackson styled. Mm-hmm. singer mm-hmm. performer and uh she said dad you have got to watch this and there's a, a video of justin timberlake performing with chris stapleton and it was mind blowing it was so flipping fantastic i mean we're talking about memphis soul tied up with nashville country tied up with uh LA hip hop it was it was absolutely outstanding and uh i've i've been a, a diehard chris stapleton fan ever since uh, his his uh recorded output is just phenomenal and um my daughter just saw him perform with of all people marty stewart and down in nashville and she said dad next year you, you got to come you got to come down and see this and i'm like i am so <laughs> there well, that's excellent. The uh, Chris Stapleton. So, what surprised you the most about that—the Justin Timberlake thing, or the Chris Stapleton thing, or the whole oh, thing? well, you know, everybody knows who uh, Justin Timberlake is. He—he's that guy that used to date Britney Spears, right? But uh, and was a, a Musketeer. But uh, the Chris Stapleton thing just totally just blew my hair back because this guy is like, you know, he is an incredibly soulful singer and just a monster guitarist and uh, just a tremendous performer. And and there's a long line of of country artists today that are equally adept at songwriting as they are at guitar playing. I'm thinking of people like Brad Paisley and Keith Urban who are amazing guitarists. And uh, in... uh, they they've been blessed with 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 good looks and singing ability and uh uh stage charisma that uh devoid of any one of those qualities would have been perfectly acceptable band members or uh studio musicians but uh they they are all triple threats they kind of reminds me of like uh say robbie robertson of of the band is someone who could play guitar like ringing a bell and uh sing and write songs and uh smart enough to surround himself with other musicians and singers who were just as capable as he was Fantastic. I remember another walker that was a couple doors down from you. I walked by his office and he's like, Daniel, listen to this. This song. He was act. He, it, it was like a refreshing, surprising thing to him. He's like, I think this is a pop song. He was of a 
vintage he loved vintage music 70s and Beatles stuff similar very similar to you he said I believe this is a pop song and it's written in three four time and it was a pleasant surprise that there was this musicality that he I think missed from was missing from what he saw as pop music so sometimes they're nice uh wonderful little surprises like that and a few pop songs <clears throat> written in three four time all right guilty pleasures versus important music so um, you gotta have a little sugar sugar in with all of the substance you can't have all cream puffs for dinner but you can have some well thanks mom <laughs> but well yeah i i did a podcast with the uh the national review online fellers uh earlier this year and we had an hour and a half conversation on what some people would consider to be a guilty pleasure and um some people would say never under any circumstances ever 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 expose yourself to the prefab four, the monkeys and I think the Monkees are a group that approached the sublime on many, many levels. And it, it was a fluke. It was just lightning in a bottle. Uh, four guys go through uh, auditions and get put together in a makeshift group and record some of the first great proto-punk music I'm thinking of Mickey Dolan's vocals on I'm Not Your Stepping Stone, which are just killer diller. I mean, just the seething, violent anger of that song is just right. brilliant. And then you have the proto-country rock of Mike Nesmith with his sweet, lilting voice and the amazingly played... Uh, finger-picking guitar of uh, You Just May Be The One, a beautiful song. And this predates uh, The Birds, Sweethearts of the, ra of the Rodeo. This predates The Dillards. This predates uh, a lot of uh, the music of you know, Graham Parsons that uh, became identified as you know country rock. And the Monkees were, were there first. They did it. And... So um, to call that a guilty pleasure, I'd say no. I it, it, that makes me guilty. <laughs> give give me a life sentence and, right. and put me on the on the gallow pole because that's amazing stuff. I mean, I, I would say that there's some comic book rock that uh, is, is kind of silly and, and nonsensical. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of bands like The Sweet, which uh, was a, a a glam rock band from the early mid 70s and uh it, it, it's silly but it's wonderful and i'll turn it up and another one of my guilty pleasures is uh, uh a band like head east which i saw like maybe four or five times in the mid 70s because they just toured so darn much Ooh. and it was like well i want to see go go see some live music well yeah head east is you know playing over at the the foot locker let's go see them and uh I could only give you two songs that they that they that they played, but 
gosh, they were they were fun songs. ACDC. Uh, uh, there's a a, a a a band that modeled itself after the Who, but for the fact that their lyrics were basically all about the same thing. Uh, <laughs> one, one is you know. Uh, looking for leg on a Saturday night or um, getting, doing violence onto somebody else, which is, you know, I guess prototypical uh, Australian thematic content in rock and roll. So, though the, I get, so I guess the, that would be two of my, my guilty pleasures. All right. You got to have some of those every once in a while. Sure. The uh, uh, I hope I don't take off too many people, but I think that "Welcome to the Jungle" by Guns N' Roses. I, I don't know how critically it is accepted, but boy, it's a good song. Had it was the walk-up song to one of the players coming up to bat at the local minor minor league baseball team, uh, the baseball game that I went to last week, and it's it's a perfect walk-up song. Well, I'll tell you what, Dan. I, I think this is a topic for another podcast, but, you know, great songs that have just worn out their welcome that I could just as easily go the rest of my life never hearing again any song by Guns N' Roses. I I understand. I understand and that would be a great podcast. Yes. We'll and, do that. Yeah, and, and, and make it and, a note. And, and and pick your Paul McCartney song here. <laughs> I I have a violent reaction to simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Oh, my, Paul McCartney. oh, oh, oh I, don't, I don't even. know what happens to the chemicals in my body. We've had this conversation before, <laughs> and and uh, I I have to agree wholeheartedly with you. I mean, there better not be a puppy within striking distance whenever that song comes on, because <laughs> that puppy is going to end up toast. <laughs> I don't care how cute it is, and or how well behaved. All right, last question before getting on to the actual music itself. Okay, I asked you early on to do three, uh, three albums that matter so that's what we'll get on to so let me ask one one more question right right leading into that is does mu- does music shape culture and or does culture shape music or is it a balancing act like so many other things yes yes it's a it's a balancing act for for sure uh Frank Zappa said that there was n- never a generation that didn't have its own Halloween, <laughs> meaning that you 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 dressed accordingly to what uh, the uh, culture demanded at that given point in time. And we have so many subcultures as well. So uh, we're both old enough where we can talk about the Seattle grunge movement and how everybody was wearing flannel shirts. But, you know, flannel shirts was just uh, uh, coming back to what uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival was doing. Mm -hmm. You know, they were reacting against kind of the the frilly hippie nonsense of San Francisco. And when I say nonsense, I'm I'm being glib because there's a lot of San Francisco rock that I, I... 
actually adore. I, I think that it's some of it is some of the greatest music ever put to vinyl. But um, CCR grew up across the bay, and they were the real deal. They were not, you know, doing three-minute versions of James Joyce's Ulysses. They were like <laughs> Jefferson Airplane was doing. They were or, or releasing concept albums. They were just releasing just great two-and-a-half-minute swamp songs, swamp rock, that was just absolutely mind-blowing and just golden nuggets of great songs. You didn't have to listen to it 20 times to say, oh, I think I get where John Fogarty's going with this. <laughs> no, it's just like if, if you didn't get John Fogarty in the first you know 20 seconds of any given CCR song, then... Um, I, I'm sorry, uh, you need to go to a gulag someplace and uh, get re-educated because that, that, that music is so easily understood from the, the it's a perfect marriage of, of lyric, performance, and music. You're blowing my mind, Bruce. The early Nirvana was a CCR cover band. Oh, really? I did not know that. That makes makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it's amazing. All wow. Things you uncover. Uh, all right. So without further ado, how about on to the records? Now these are, uh, for, for the audience, these aren't necessarily, they, they can be. I don't know what they're, what Bruce is going to say, but the, these aren't, I, I specifically didn't want him to tell me his top three favorite albums because that's really difficult to do. It's like asking it's what's the best jazz album out there. But you know, it's all personal preference and experience and timing and you know, the money you had in your hand at the time that you could afford one album and you didn't we wanted another one. But uh so Bruce is gonna share uh three albums that matter. Three, so. three albums that matter, and, and you're right. This is completely subjective, and it, it, you know, if you were to ask me my 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 top three favorite albums this week, it'd be entirely different from my top three favorite albums next week, because everything is constantly shifting. I I'll, I I will start out by saying that uh, one of the most influential albums of uh, the late 1960s, it kind of popped the psychedelic bubble that uh, the San Francisco bands were doing, the uh, the Beatles were doing, uh, the Pink Floyd, and there, so there was a, a movement afoot to get back to basics, and uh, Bob Dylan had a backup band that... Uh, the, the Hawks that actually became the band. And they released this highly influential album called Music from Big Pink. And this was after recording the basement tapes with Bob Dylan. And it was just kind of funky Americana. And it, it was so influential that George Harrison wanted to quit the Beatles and join the band. Uh, he started a friendship with Bob Dylan that... Uh, lasted until the end of their lives and included uh, being in the same band together, the Traveling Wilburys. So uh, music from Big Pink was so influential that uh, Eric Clapton decided that he had had enough of the bickering between Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker and folded cream as a result. 
because he wanted to play music that was a little bit more funky and and um, more genuine and real rather than just doing you know 25 minute drum solos in the middle of a 45 minute psychedelic breakdown of a Robert Johnson blues tune so um, it was a highly influential album and so I, I guess this is all a lead up to discussing children of big pink and uh, I think one of the, the the greatest ones to come out of this was um, Pete Townsend of The Who, who had just become enormously, tremendously successful with uh, Tommy and then uh, Who's Next and Live at Leeds. And it was just, you know, power chords and thrashing and, you know, male adolescent angst to the max. And don't get me wrong, I love it. I mean, I, I could listen to Quadrophenia any day of the week, and uh, I would venture to say even lived it for a while. But um, he also had a softer, quieter side, and uh, this was brought to the fore in an album that he released in 1977 that he recorded with Ronnie Lane from The Faces. And The Faces were uh, yet another uh, brazen band, you know, they, Rod Stewart was the lead singer and they were intoxicated on stage, all drinking beers and constantly partying and what have you. <clears throat> but, uh, Ronnie Lane left the faces and s started touring in like a gypsy caravan and quickly ran out of all the, the royalty money that he had made as a member of the Faces. And so he asked Pete Townsend to help him with this album to complete it. And P Townsend had all these songs that weren't quintessential Who songs. You, you cannot hear Roger, Roger Daltrey singing the songs that are on the, the 1977 album Rough Mix, which is a beautiful album. And I, I would even call it my desert island album this is the album that i could listen to constantly and have listened to it constantly since i bought my first copy back in 1977 my senior year in high school it's it, it's beautiful it's it's a an album that is autumnal because it, it just conjures all of the wonderful thoughts of someone entering middle age thinking about love, thinking about mortality, thinking about the past, thinking about carnality. It's very much a warm sweater on a, on a frosty autumn evening. The, the songs in it are beautiful. It starts out with a, the, a song about, uh, one would think, sexual love. My baby gives it away. Where you're thinking, okay, this guy is... Um, misogynistic and sexist but when you listen to the song a million times like I have you see it as not having to beg for not just sex but for actual love from your your life partner and it, it's very very beautiful and it then it goes into some wonderful instrumentals and 
uh, a song about uh, April Fool by Ronnie Lane was just one of the most perfectly beautiful vocals ever, ever captured on vinyl. And Dave Marsh identified this as a song that Ronnie Lane wrote when he discerned that he was uh, suffering from MS, which is what killed Ronnie Lane's mom. So he knew that he had just received his, his death sentence. And he's writing and singing this soft, lovely song about taking his dreams to bed now where they belong, long gone. And it is so amazing. And the, the song in and of itself is ostensibly about a lull in a romantic marital relationship. But it's, it's also a, a song about recognizing your own mortality and that it's sooner than you had anticipated. Let's listen to just a little bit of it. that uh, there's some just wonderful instrumental instrumentation in there. Uh, Dobro, played by Eric Clapton, and uh, Charlie Watts uh, doing a nice little drum fill, John Entwistle on, uh, on bass, and Gallagher and Lyle, who were uh, major components of the British folk boom, are, are also uh, appear on this song. So it, it's, it's tremendous. So the album... You felt matters because of its influence on other people or other creators or for the album itself? For the album itself. It, okay. it, it, it's, to me, it's a perfect work of, of the art that rock always possessed that potential but very seldom attained that level of artistic achievement. Okay. Uh, what else have we got? Okay. Um, well, let's uh, fast forward to the 1980s. and uh, Totally awesome. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not a huge fan of the, of, of the decade, but when it comes to music or, or film for that matter. Tears for fears. Come on. Okay. All right. I don't mean to but, distract you. But, but uh, they're... Uh, one of my favorite soundtracks from the early 1980s was a uh, uh, The Border. It's a Jack Nicholson, Harvey Keitel film. And it's it's not a terrific film, but uh, it's got some eminently quotable lines that I, I, I can't repeat here. But uh, the soundtrack was done by Ry Cooter. And Ry Cooter put together uh, a band that included Jim Keltner, and uh, Sam Samudio and uh, Freddie Fender and uh, a young vocalist who was kind of making his mark as a solo artist but was also the vocalist in Ry Cooter's band at the time, and that's John Hyatt. And 
Hyatt and Cooter wrote some amazing songs for that soundtrack. And I, I remember finding a copy of it in 1982 and, and buying it and just cherishing it. And then a couple of years later, working at a publishing house, reading a review that uh, John Hyatt had just come out with another album where he was the, the title artist, but the, the band was Jim Keltner and Ry Cooter and... Lo and behold, one of my all-time favorite performers, songwriters, Nick Lowe on bass, and that was Bring the Family. And this is a, a song about becoming an adult, or the, the whole album is about recognizing the limitations of adulthood and accepting those limitations. It, it, it's really uh, a very mature approach to rock and roll it is rock and roll actually entering a another phase and uh you know one of the the t most people would recognize uh, memphis in the meantime or uh what was the the huge hit off the album that uh, became a big hit for bonnie Raitt? uh, uh Right at that time, right at eighty four. Yeah, I, I no, no. This this would have been around eighty eight. Oh, okay. uh, okay. Are you ready for a thing called love? Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, a, a brilliant song. But uh, to me, the, the the other songs on the album that uh, really stand out for me are uh, "Have a Little Faith," and um, which is yeah. oh, it's yeah. you know that song. Yeah, and it's just absolutely um, bone-chillingly beautiful. So let's listen to a little bit from that album. When the road gets dark And you can no longer see Just let my love throw a spark Have a little faith in me When the tears you cry Are all you can believe Just give these loving arms a try, baby And have a little faith in me have a little faith in me. It, it, it's an album that was tremendously groundbreaking, and, and, and what it did for me was it just established John Hyatt as an individual who was to release just a slew of subsequent albums, and all of them are just brilliant, just brilliant. He's just an amazing songwriter and an underrated vocalist. That guy can just sing his eyeballs out. He's just so amazing and uh, so ex wonderfully expressive and never takes himself too terribly seriously uh, in some of his more upbeat songs on, on subsequent albums or even on, um, what, what's, the, what's the song? I think it's like the penultimate song on, on side two of the album because I'm still thinking in, in vinyl uh, years. And uh, uh, your dad did, which is just a it's 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 a cute 
charming, funny song about a, a guy who's just dealing with the day-to-day travails of adulthood. You know, you go to work just to watch some jerk pick up the perks you were in line to get, and your job's expired, and you've been fired. You're, they just ain't told you yet. And so you go out and buy yourself a brand-new pair of wheels just to show your family just how great you feel, acting like a kid, just like your dad did. But And, and it, it, it's humorous, but then you get to the final verse, and the final verse is wonderful, where he comes home and... The family sits down to eat dinner together and all hands fold as the two-year-old says grace. She says, help the starving children to get well. Then there's a beautiful uh, sitar playing in the background by Ry Cooter. And may my brother's hamster burn in hell. (laughs) (laughs) You love your wife and kids just like your dad did. And I... Sorry, just get misty listening to that's that. That's a wonder. It's that sounds like. Well, there's there's perfectly good wastes of emotion, you know, like the movie Big or something. It's it's great. It's a great movie, but it's just like empty. But then there's other things that are emotive that are important. Right, right, and and you know it's something that you can hang your your hat on and say, yeah, you know, life isn't always. Uh, full of sadness and sentimentality and despair. But you need to recognize this, the, special, the special aspects of life. And it might be two seconds of a two-year-old saying a nice prayer about helping starving children. But remembering that she's still a two-year-old and she can be a nasty little creature. Well, this is uh, this is wonderful, and I've turned a corner in my mind because we're heading toward the end of this podcast, and I really look forward to. I'm looking forward already to the next one. But can you bring us home with a third record that matters? Yes, um, huge, huge Graham Parker fan from from day one uh, since the mid 70s he was a person who with his remarkably crack band it was an all-star band of all these british pub rock bands and they they came out with just a a series of r&b infused pub rock proto-punk i'm shaking my fist at the sky anger and he kind of ran the wheels off that cart, you know. It was, you know, very Van Morrison type stuff, but Bob Dylan influence. But by the mid '80s, he had kind of like uh, run out of road with with uh, that particular vehicle. He released an album called "The Mona Lisa Sister," which marked. Uh, a new maturity to his songwriting and uh, that was followed up with this, uh, an album called human soul which continued uh it was kind of a concept album and highly creative and they were all they're both wonderful wonderful albums but the one that really really struck me was um i said struck me because the name of the album is struck by lightning <laughs> and what 
the artist Graham Parker was struck by, the lightning that struck him, was the glories of family life. Hmm. And uh, he begins the song with a couple of just caustic, nasty songs about his observations of moving to the, to the United States. He's living in Woodstock, New York, and how he was trying to deal with uh, the hypocrisy of American life. He, obviously, you know, he's not a fan of uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, who was president at the time. Uh, he wasn't a fan of American pop culture and whatnot, but his, his wife and his children all settled in Woodstock, New York, and he released an album with um, members of, or a member of Elvis Costello's original attractions. Uh, and uh, who is, um, Garth Hudson, I think, is on the album, and as well as uh, uh, John Sebastian from uh, The Love and Spoonful who wrote one of the most beautiful love songs of all time, Darling Be Home Soon. Hmm. And so here's this album that starts out with this caustic observations of American culture and then turns into this remarkable valentine to family life, his adoration of his wife, his, his uh, observations of his, of his daughters. You know, the kid with the butterfly net, which is just a remarkable, remarkable song about just watching your kid running through the field with a butterfly net and just wanting to recapture that innocence. Let's give a few moments of a listen to that. She walks through the field, walks in the heat through the field. She swings with her arm. Can what she catches be real? And when you look into her eyes, you see what you want. When everything was undone, everything was open, nothing was impossible yet. The kid with the butterfly net. The kid with the butterfly net. Isn't that great? Yeah. Dan, it's, it's been so amazing talking to you. I, I, I appreciate it. Always learn so much from me, Bruce, and I appreciate your uh, influence. Uh, appreciate your uh, insight into all things culture and today, specifically music. It's a big part of my life, and maybe that's why you're so important to me. Is that you can speak so strongly to the music portion of this thing that is important to me and so i'm once again grateful and look forward to the next time where can we learn more about bruce edward walker uh, there's this little thing it's called a search engine hmm. and you can just uh, kind of punch my name in bruce edward walker i do podcasts for the acton institute for, for the study of religion and liberty on uh cultural matters uh i do a lot of writing for the acton institute as well and uh, I sometimes hang my byline at The Federalist, at thefederalist.com. All right. And I will have links to several of, direct links to several of those things there at the bottom of this page. Uh, but uh, until next time, Bruce, thanks for joining me at the Best Dan podcast. We will 
Uh, see you sooner than you hope. Oh, I get it now. It's the best Dan podcast. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. I, I not thought even you were... swearing. Oh, you're you're. A Does punster. it sound like I'm swearing? It sounded like you were swearing, and I thought, well, <laughs> gosh, that's not the Dan Montgomery I know. <laughs> well, now you know everything about me. Okay. All right. Well, it's it's a good guy to know. Thanks so much, Bruce. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. All right, man. Bye.